Well, welcome. This is the first episode of Draft Politics. I'm one of your co-hosts. My name is EJ, and I'm here with you today because it was really important to me to get together with somebody that I know and respect to start a conversation about politics. I've been dealing with and talking to people uh, in the political scene for a few years now here in Chicago, around Illinois, and friends across the country, and really took an interest in how people talk about politics, what they think about it, and how our views are shaped by those around us and what we're hearing and seeing on TV and other podcasts and other important media. Steve? And since he couldn't find anybody he knew and respected with a flexible schedule, I'm here. Uh, I'm Steve. Uh, I'm uh, one of the founders of the uh, Netroots Nation Conference, and I'm also the uh, local uh, chapter host of Drinking Liberally, uh, and it's all around the nation, but I host the uh, Chicago version of it, and we meet once a month. Uh, so I've been in politics basically since 2006, worked on a couple campaigns, and uh, that's uh, pretty much my story. Right. Steve, that's really good that you point that out, because he and I met uh, on a campaign uh, here in Illinois for governor. He was a very progressive, independent person that we both knew about and respected and volunteered on that campaign. We had different roles uh, in that campaign, but realized across that campaign that we had similar views on things, not completely aligned, but pretty similar, uh, and both took an interest in hearing what other people had to say. Um, and so from there, uh, we wanted to kind of take you know, our love of beer and our love of politics and combine them together. So what we're going to be doing is meeting up at local bars in Chicago, uh, trying to stick largely to like tap rooms and local breweries. Uh, and we'll sit there and talk about politics. And that's pretty much the format of the show. One of the things about doing a podcast about politics here in Chicago is that people across the country think of Chicago politics as being dirty. They think about it being rough, complex, but they know it for our they know Chicago for politics. They should also know Chicago for beer. So when we combine those two things, we think that we've got a pretty good opportunity for some good things to happen. Yeah, a little 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 Al Capone, a little Windy City, a little Richie Daly, so we got it all right here. So, Absolutely. So what are we hoping to accomplish in this podcast? You know, there are a number of podcasts that are out there, thousands probably, tens of thousands. Can't listen to them all. But we really thought that it was important for us to take some time uh, to try to get a conversation going with people that was really about how people think and talk about politics at a local level at a city, state, and national level. Because one of the things that I saw, and I think Steve agreed with me on, was that people are influenced in how they think based on those around them. And you can have a perfectly reasonable conversation with somebody in a bar about politics, but as soon as you get online, or as soon as it's in a context of the screaming and yelling that happens by the talking heads on TV, that people get less reasonable. So we thought it was important to have that sort of beer-level conversation about all topics uh, with as many people as we could. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty good summary of it. I know for me personally, I'm sort of the liberal black sheep of my family. And so a lot of the conversations that I've had with, you know, members of my family I'd otherwise disagree with are over a beer or several beers, you know, late into the evening where we can, you know, let things flow a little bit and, you know, and, and we can find some common ground. And sometimes, you know, it doesn't happen. But yeah. uh, I think it's like it's, it's a good atmosphere for having a conversation in the world that we live in today. So, yeah, no doubt. One of the funny things that was 
we saw was when we were first getting together to try to come up with what we were going to do and how we were going to do it, talking at a bar, two people walked in, perfect strangers sitting at the bar, a political ad came on TV, an ad that we've all seen too many times. And that sparked a conversation between them. And those people did not align. They did not agree on their politics. But they had a 10 or 15 minute conversation that was perfectly civil and reasonable. And they were laughing. And they connected in some ways. Uh, they didn't agree, but they connected. And that was really sort of at essence to what I think we're trying to do. Yeah, and what we may do as this goes on is maybe do an interview segment where we can bring on uh, some random bar patron and see what they think about you know the issues of the day. But for now, it's just going to be the two of us and figuring things out, and we'll see where this ends up. Right, so maybe you should listen to us. Maybe you shouldn't. We're you know two white guys, kind of middle-aged, who are reasonably liberal in our politics. Hanging out in a bar. So Hanging out know. in a bar, in a brewery. You know what you're getting into. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Is it craft beer? Is it uh, two white guys? Yes, it is. All right. Am I wearing a puffy vest? Yes, yes you I are. <laughs> <laughs> to get things started, uh, we want to talk about the Chicago election, which is, you know, the most timely and relevant thing we've got to talk about uh, in Chicago politics. And one of the things that was sort of struck us about uh, the way the evening unfolded as we were watching the results come in was how many upsets there were. And, you know, if you're familiar with Chicago politics, there's the whole history of the machine and everything being a fairly static, unchanging sort of beast of a pol political system. And we've seen over the last few years that starting to come apart after uh, after Daly left and uh, Rahm's, you know, he served two terms, but didn't really, he ended up dropping out because he wasn't going to win re-election. Uh, so we want to talk about like some of the alderman races and then also talk about the mayoral race and kind of what's going on with the runoff. So Yeah, absolutely. And it was really interesting even up to coming up to the election it was clear that it was going to be a change so the surprise announcement to many that Rom wasn't going to run again I think gave people energy that they otherwise might not have had absolutely and so as we kind of look across that political spectrum and of course you know those municipal elections You've got mayor, you've got all 50 wards have their aldermanic elections. Not all of them are contested, but most of them are. Uh, then you have another couple city positions. Again, only one contested, I think, this time. Right. So you've got a lot of activity that's happening there. And the number of challengers that we see not only put up good fights but win or push their incumbent to a runoff was really impressive. So an interesting thing about Chicago municipal elections, you're wondering maybe why we're talking about them here in March. They are two things interesting. One is they're nonpartisan. So there's no Republican, Democrat. They all happen together. Uh, and there are reasons for that that go back a little ways, and I would maybe save that for another episode. Uh, the second thing is they're in a very cold part of the year. So uh, it's oftentimes you'll see people out bundled up, knocking on doors in the middle of January and February. And they're uh, made to be runoff. So you have to get 50% plus one to win. So what happens is you'll have a general election usually in February, this time February the 26th, and then a runoff for the top two candidates if nobody has gotten 50% plus one. And that this year is going to happen April 2nd. So, yeah, if you were a mayor with a lot of power 
and wanted to ensure that you were going to retain that power, the things you would do is make sure there are a lot of aldermen so nobody can really concentrate their power, and you'd also make sure the election is a very cold month in Chicago so nobody can get out the vote. And so that's how we get to where we are. Yeah, that's a really good analysis of it. And I think if you look at the way that aldermen have their jobs set up for them, it really is like a mini mayor. So they've got their own budget. They've got a lot of leeway in their own wards, and there are 50 wards in Chicago, each one about 60,000 people-ish. Yeah, and it's a lot more aldermen per person than any other city in the United States. Yeah, totally true, totally true. So let's kind of talk about some of those races that we were surprised about. Uh, maybe the first one is in the 49th Ward. Uh, Joe Moore, longtime alderman, uh, defeated outright in the general by Maria Haddon. Yep. I think this was something that made progressives across the city very happy. Uh, Maria Haddon was endorsed by every progressive and independent group. Uh, she herself is very intelligent. Uh, she came with a progressive agenda, uh, really ran an amazing campaign. Uh, it was something that Nobody predicted at the beginning, but people who followed that campaign and that race knew that that was going to happen at the end. Yeah, and it's interesting because Moore was a longtime member of the Progressive Caucus, and he was always seen as being a, a very progressive alderman, but just over time that was less and less the case. I mean, to give you some context, he was one of the people who was a very big proponent of the foie gras ban uh, many years ago. So, you know, very, very much that, but, you know, over time, Less so, and that gave her an opportunity to get in there and, uh, and win that. So Yeah, and it was fantastic. And I think, again, progressives across the city point to Maria Haddon as being you know, one of the new leaders of the progressive or young progressive movement. Another interesting one was the first word with Daniel Espada, uh, uh, DSA endorsed. Another young progressive uh, beat Joe Proco Moreno. So Joe was appointed first to the city council by... Uh, Mayor Daly in 2010, and then won two elections in 2011 with 75% of the vote, 2015 with just over 51%. So his popularity had been going down, but still a longstanding alderman uh, defeated pretty handily in this election, 61% yeah. Daniel Espada got. Yeah, a good friend of mine actually worked on both the last campaign against him and this campaign, and so he's, he's pretty excited to see him finally go down, but uh, it's, you know... It's interesting to see the legacy of Daly slowly eroding uh, as all these aldermen, you know, are toppled by progressive challengers. Right. And that's, you know, sort of countered on the other side by, you know, the loss in the 45th Ward uh, by John Arena. So John Arena was a longtime progressive candidate. Uh, there was a lot of noise and buzz around his push to get more affordable housing and a development uh, in his ward. And the blowback from that looks like it cost him yeah. his seat on the city council. And I think it's it's one of those races where as a progressive like I didn't really I didn't really have a sense that he was in that much trouble. Like I remember seeing some asks for donations and all that and I thought okay, he's been around a while, he'll be fine. And nope, not so much. Uh, so yeah, so it's not all not all uh, roses here in this election, but uh, certainly not for the progressives, I guess. And you also saw a number of retiring incumbents and that shaped some of these uh, elections. And so you had people like Daniel Solis retiring. And I think Daniel Solis, uh, if you're a big fan of The Wire, you'll like Daniel Solis. His ward and his career sort of deserves its own episode, I suspect. 
But the other two on the north side that I think are really interesting are Margaret Loreno in the 39th Ward and Amea Pawar in the 47th. Now, Amea is somebody who Steve and I both know. We worked on his campaign for governor. Uh, I think, Steve, you live in the 47th yes, Ward. Yes, I live right? in the Ward. And um, I, was, I remember going to the first debate that he appeared at back when he first ran for election, and it was one of those daily anointed aldermen who had passed on the reins to a guy who was supposed to follow him, and he phoned it in and had this young upstart come in and take it over, and that's how Poir got his career started. Right. Um, and, and he committed to, at the time, saying he was only going to serve two terms, and that's exactly what he did. So, yeah. Well, only two terms as alderman, evidently, because the mayor's... Well, running for city treasurer yes. he's also in a runoff and we'll kind of take that aside but that ward the 47th ward which is actually where mayor Rahm Emanuel lives yes has turned into a bit of a party yeah i think there were nine people who were running for that yeah it was pretty crazy um and you know you you got a pretty good sense of it being narrowed down to a handful of candidates with you know uh, Matt Martin and Michael Negrone and um, Eileen Dordek all getting a good amount of financial support and seeming to have some some volunteer base for each of them. Uh, but it ultimately came down to uh, Matt Martin having a pretty clear victory. It was something over 40% of the vote. So he almost avoided the runoff. Uh, but it's him now versus Negrone. And so that's all playing out as, you know, I get, you know, endless push-pull calls and, and texts from from Negron's campaign trying to sway me over for Matt Martin. And uh, full disclosure, I'm one of Matt Martin's volunteers and donors and all that. <laughs> so he's got my support, but uh, we'll see how it all plays out. Well, and I think one of the really interesting things, and I think this is a good segue, is that when you look at that race, so when you look at the number of candidates who were in the 47th Ward, Matt and Michael, uh, Michael, who was a policy, uh, policy staffer for... Uh, Rahm Emanuel. Uh, you also had candidates like Eileen Dordick, who is a social worker, I believe. Yep. Uh, you had uh, uh, Kitsis Way. Yeah, she's, uh, she worked for the Cubs right. and got some backing from some of the, the Ricketts family, though not the, the, the most crazy of the Ricketts. Sure. <laughs> um, and when you looked across, though, I think the, the spectrum of the candidates there, there were not certainly conservative candidates out of those right you know in most parts of the country they would all be seen as pretty progressive pretty liberal now matt martin i believe is a civil rights attorney uh, he's got really good uh, sort of progressive bona fides if you will but now as we've kind of shifted to the runoff i think you see that the rhetoric about the two candidates makes them seem much more divided much more conservative versus progressive than they probably actually yeah. are. Yeah, like you see a lot of the attacks from Negron are essentially along the lines of, oh, he's trying to raise your taxes, and it's sort of that very traditional, you know, which you normally think of at, the, at a national level as a Republican versus a Democrat is plays out differently in our race. And so he ends up coming off as more of the, I mean, in the end, he's more of a sort of centrist Democrat versus a progressive Democrat or right. however you want to phrase it. But that kind of strikes at the heart of the fact that Chicago is definitely a blue city. But there are shades of blue. For sure. And For sure. the way that that plays out, even on a local level, mirrors how our politics play out on a national level with issues that are actually much more divisive. Absolutely. 
And I guess that, to me, leads up a little bit to where we are in the mayor election. Yes. So we've got the uh, runoff now. Uh, so we've got um, Lori Lightfoot and uh, Tony Preckwinkle. So Tony Preckwinkle is uh, the Cook County uh, board president right now. And Lori Lightfoot is a, uh, an attorney who's running against her. Uh, and she was actually, Lori Lightfoot's notable in that she was the, one of the few who had decided to run against Rahm Emanuel before he had officially declared himself not running. So, uh, and it's been interesting to see how it all breaks down. I've seen a lot of progressives who are strongly in favor of Preckwinkle and also strongly in favor of Laura Lightfoot. Um, I think probably more of the people that I tend to talk to have been more in favor of Lightfoot. Um, but it's, it's been interesting to see how that plays out, that some, some activists have had problems with some things that Lightfoot does. And right. Yeah. And if we think about where we started, though, in the mayoral election. So there were numerous candidates from across the spectrum, right? So we had people who have been longtime political operatives or uh, have been elected to different offices across the state who were in here. So we had people like uh, Bob Fioretti, who's a former alderman. We had uh, Willie Wilson, who is a businessman, very eccentric. We had Neil Salas Griffin, uh, a younger businessman, tech entrepreneur, really smart guy. We had uh, Paul Vallis, who was former uh, CPS chief, uh, has done similar things, I think, in Boston and Philadelphia. So you had a big expanse of people. Uh, Gary McCarthy, former police superintendent. You looked at that range of people. Oh, and I forgot one fairly important name, The Daily. Oh, Bill Daly. Yes. Of course. So, <laughs> yes. And a daily. No Chicago election is complete without a without daily. A daily. Right. And just, again, in case anybody was worried, there is a daily who was elected as alderman down in the 25th ward, I think. Oh, good. A, We've got our quota. Yeah, we have at least one daily and in Chicago city government. It's also a fun fact that had Daly managed to get in the runoff and won, it would have been Rahm Emanuel, former chief of staff of Barack Obama, being succeeded by Bill Daly, former chief of staff of Barack Obama. So right. there you go. And so maybe when I had said before, everybody knew that this was going to be a change election. Maybe everybody w hoped it was going to be a change election yes. and then saw Daly and thought maybe it won't be yeah, a change There was election. a big sigh of relief breathed by many. It was like, thank God it's not another Daly. <laughs> Well, and I think that right there is a, a very good example of where we are right now. So if you looked at all those candidates and talked to progressive people across the city, people who know a lot or don't know a lot about politics but feel themselves to be pretty progressive, they would have had their ideal situations and their nightmare scenarios. And I can guarantee that on February 24th, had you said to them, your next mayor is going to be an African-American woman, they would have considered that a win. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And now that we're into the runoff, I think some of those same people are looking to really attack the person that they don't favor. Yeah. Which I think is sort of a microcosm for where our political discourse has 
landed us. For sure. And I, I feel like a lot of this gets fueled by just how we interact with social media. And we make an emotional connection to a politician or an issue. And once we've sort of made that connection, it becomes harder and harder for us to have a, a discussion about it and have us moved away from that position. And you see that play a lot in, these, in the way these uh, races have gone. In particular, I think right now, as you see, Preckwinkle and Lightfoot having their runoff and the the positions that people had before that that race have now solidified no matter what comes out about different candidates and who endorses who um, and it's been interesting to see how that flows yeah and I think one of the really interesting things about that is that you can have a soft position on a candidate or you can be mildly uh, leaning in one direction but then find that single thing that you're going to latch on to and make that your one issue and be very, very vehement about that. And so even when you look at two candidates who are certainly more progressive than anyone that Chicago has had for a long time. Absolutely. People will look at them and say, well, Lori Lightfoot is affiliated with the police. And so she is pro-police. Or Tony Preckwinkle. Tony Prankwinkle? <laughs> she's not running this time. She's not running. <laughs> is you know part of the machine, and so she's corrupt. And they will latch on to those, and they will hold on to those things yeah. dearly. And again, I think that is because of the way that all of our political discourse has run over the, the last several years. And when you think about, you know, how do people make a decision who to vote for? And it, it's often not those issues that they latch onto or get most angry about or refuse to get off of when people are talking to them. It's, as you said, Steve, those sort of personal connections. Yeah, it's, it's identifying with, with that person. I mean, it could be about an issue, but ultimately it can be just who they are. Or you met them at the L stop and, you know, got along with them yeah. just fine. You know, it, and it really does vary a lot, you know. Or it's, hey, I just walked in the voting booth and that name is familiar to me. Right. Or it's in the right order. I mean, that's one of the things we know is that whoever's name is on the ballot first gets a certain amount of votes because that just happens to be the order it's in. Right. So. And if you hear the narrative from folks, right, so you'll talk to some progressive people in Chicago and they say everything's changing. People are anti-machine. They see what's going on and they want to change it. So let's just take the example of the very fine hat wearing <laughs> longtime alderman, <laughs> yes. Ed Burke. He was arrested. His offices were raided. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he did the taxes for Donald Trump. He did. He okay. did taxes for Donald and Trump. And rated twice. And rated twice. And he somehow wins re-election. You know, and doesn't and even go to a runoff. Yeah. 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 <laughs> By a landslide. I mean, so, you know, and I think a lot of it is, it does suggest, you know, how important it is to challenge everybody on every election because you never know what's going to happen. But, man, <laughs> it's yeah. like the machine oh, yeah. lives. <laughs> well, and it just... It tells you that people have different perspectives on what's going on. Absolutely. And, you know, here in Chicago, we hear a lot about corruption, or when you're paying attention, you hear a lot about corruption. So from the hat of Ed Burke, again, fantastic hat. 
And I do believe that Ed Burke's hat has a parody Twitter account. Oh, good. Good, good, good. As it should. To Danny Solis, who I mentioned earlier. So he's retiring. I think retiring is a getting out of the line of fire. So it's come to light that Danny Solis wore a wire for the FBI uh, for over a year, uh, which drew some really interesting commentary from other aldermen. Danny O'Shea uh, recently said, well, if you did that in my ward, you'd get your ass kicked, which I thought was very funny. (laughs) And again, is an interesting take on it when you hear a member of the deliberative body for the city of Chicago is wearing a wire for some reason. And another member of that body says he should get his ass kicked. That feels very Chicago. It feels (laughs) very Chicago. Right. right. And yet the people who are sort of attached either direct or indirectly to these folks don't really seem to be impacted. So I wonder to myself, how much do people care? Is it they don't know? Is it they don't care? Is it they see their streets being paved and they're okay with it. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's another thing that's interesting about alderman races is because of that blend of many mayor versus city councilor, a lot of people vote based on who's getting their dumpsters dealt with and the potholes fixed, and other people are voting based on their legislative policies and what they want to do citywide, and it's a very different way of thinking about things. I tend to think more about the legislative side because... My dumpsters are fine and my potholes are okay, I guess. So, yeah. Well, and this is an interesting question. What percentage of people do you think actually care about the legislative side or understand the legislative side? Well, right, right. And so it's hard to know, like, what is... And I think it's like if you're running for Alderman, like, what is the thing you should be running on? I mean, I know in the 47th Ward, I felt like uh, Eileen Dordek was running more on the I'm going to make sure that, like, keep things running and that Matt ran on more of the legislative side of things and that seemed to work for him but does that mean that's what drives voters or it's just their charisma and their volunteers who knows yeah I and I think that that's a really interesting thing about the position of aldermen in the city of Chicago and in other places too certainly New York has a city council that's both has an executive function and a legislative function but in Chicago how acute the executive function is, and I think by design. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but maybe that's part of what the progressive movement is here in Chicago, to think more about what does that legislative body have the opportunity to do in this in the third largest city in the country. Yeah, and I've, I've long thought that the way to, to move forward with it is to focus on more of the city council role and shift aldermen away from being the mini-mayors. The mini-mayor thing is where the corruption happens. It's where I can control which license you're getting if you don't support me for my next race. And so that's where a lot of that comes in. And if they're only focused on the city council work, that also makes them a better check on the power of the mayor in the city. So, Well, I mean, I think Ed Burke would say that <laughs> the ability to hand out permits is a key yes it's a key yeah, role yes it's very important <laughs> and the counterpoint tongue in and out of cheek here is to say that an alderman should know their ward best true and so shouldn't they make decisions about the way licenses and permits are handled that and see it's just like the the national debate state control local control versus federal control we just have cities and wards and small federalism exactly Many, many federalists. Many federalists.
So, you know, just sort of wrapping up on the mayoral election, there's going to be more to talk about for sure, but sort of state of play right now, we've got, you know, the two candidates, again, who I think two months ago, if somebody had said to us, you will have a choice between Lori Lightfoot and Tony Preckwinkle as a progressive here in the city of Chicago, I would have been extremely Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good about, about that. <laughs> uh, it, we've had a lot of endorsements come out. On the Lori Lightfoot side, six of the mayoral contenders have now endorsed her, uh, including, you know, people like Jerry Joyce, Neil Solis Griffin, and some of the other aldermen have endorsed her, endorsed her as well. On the other side, you've got endorsements for Tony Preckwinkle from lots and lots of the unions. So there's a long way to go still. It's a few weeks, but a long way to go. Lots of money to be spent, I'm sure. Uh, lots of... Uh, interesting campaign ads to be run yeah and it's also interesting to see like how that plays out are they are they backing them because they genuinely like them or are they backing them because they think they have the best shot at winning and so right. you, you see a, a trend of that where it's like there are a certain amount of endorsements happened before the election and now it seems like it's sort of shifted an overdrive towards lightfoot who ha seems to have the inside track at, at winning this yeah and i think one of the things that you mentioned earlier, Steve, and I think this is relevant here, is that, you know, having both of us been involved in politics at very various levels here in Chicago, I've seen some of the ways that endorsements work, and they aren't really about necessarily the best candidate all the time. They are about either horse trading or who do they think they can win or... Who can they influence the most? Who are they going to have to work with for the next four years? <laughs> right. Or who do they want to work against? Yeah. And so, sure. you know, I don't put a ton of stock in all of those endorsements, but I do think that it's interesting. So when you see somebody like a Jerry Joyce endorsing Lori Lightfoot, who really didn't have a lot of alignment in policy prior to now, you know, is that because he doesn't like Tony Preckwinkle? Is it because he suddenly has, pun intended, seen the light? Or is it because he believes that Laurie has the best chance of winning? And that kind of then backs up to say, when you see polls coming out from the different candidates, how much do those influence things? Absolutely. So, I mean, sort of wrapping that up, knowing that we're going to come back to it later, let's take a little bit of a break and talk about our first brew pub here. Yeah, so our first stop uh, along this journey, which will last who knows how long, is uh, Twisted Hippo, which is fairly recent addition to the brew scene in here in Chicago. I, do you know when they opened? It is, yeah. So Twisted Hippo's open here on Montrose Ave, uh, here in Albany Park. So it's just west of Horner Park on Montrose. They're the third brewery to occupy the space, actually. Uh, the first two were Break Room Brewery and Finch's Break Room uh, started off actually as a guy who built bars. So if you've been to Revolution Brew Pub, which hopefully we'll make it to, uh, they have a fantastic bar. He built the bar there. Uh, and that didn't succeed, and it was bought by Finches. Uh, they were here for a few months. Also didn't succeed, but I think for reasons of uh, planning and beer quality. And now we've got Twisted Hippo. They've got a great concept in here. Really happy to see them in. The owner's uh, live here in the neighborhood, uh, really great people, and the beers are a lot of fun. Yeah, it's interesting because I had never heard, I mean, I've heard of Finch's, which they still operate uh, down more in the uh, West Loop area, 
Uh, but I hadn't heard of the other breweries when they were here. And I immediately heard about Twisted Hippo. Like, I was getting lots of people saying what good beer they have. And so this is my first time here, actually. And uh, I'm having the... Today we have a Plum Pass, which is a Saison with Italian plum. And it uh, clocks in at 6.8% ABV, so not, not too light. Uh, and it's interesting because this doesn't have quite that mustiness you usually get with the Saison. It's like nice, like the plum kind of balances it out. Um, and then I've switched over to the Chunky Monk, which is some kind of stout. I re don't remember the details of it, but it's mighty delicious too. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I've, I'm on to the Passion Fruit, Fruit Brute IPA, which I'm really enjoying, I've got to say. And it's a 6.9 ABV. In the ABV arms race, that's yes. uh, pretty pretty light. Actually, it's almost sessionable, yes. which I can't believe. Yeah, I tend to I tend to drift towards the heavy end of the of the <laughs> arms <laughs> race. I am a big fan of of Belgian beers, so lots of the you know 12, 13 percent octane. Nice. And one of the things that I really like about Twisted Hippo is the concept they have here in terms of service and sort of fully loaded charges. So. When you buy a beer, the price you see is what you pay. Uh, they don't expect additional tip. Everybody gets paid a living wage. Uh, you get service from anybody. It's sort of service by mob, which I found works really well. Uh, and I really appreciate that they've taken the time to think about how to make sure that everybody that works here does get a living wage. Yeah, and it feels sort of like an appropriate start to all of this. That that's that's the sort of one of the founding principles of this bar. So absolutely, and they have. Killer Queen, the video game. Yeah, and I on don't the balcony know, above us. I so. don't know if you can pick this up on the audio, but we every every so often hear like random noises coming from the video games in the background. So hopefully you can get a sense of that, a little bit of the vibe of this place, which is uh, a combination of uh, light pink and green, and truly uh, sticks to the Twisted Hippo theme. I think. We're not sponsored yet, but Steve's here to bring us our first unofficial sponsor. Are you somebody who never thought to wear racist or xenophobic symbols when going out for a night on the town? The kind of person who can happily go to any establishment and have a quiet meal without angrily shouting epithets at other patrons. Well, now there's an app just for you. Introducing 39401.225BLUE. 39401.225 Blues search algorithms help you find bars and restaurants that won't make you feel the need to wear swastikas or MAGA hats. Even if you are a racist, if you can keep that to yourself for an evening, 39401.225 Blue is right for you. 39401.225 Blue. Because not being an asshole isn't that hard. This podcast also brought to you by ZapRecruiter. ZapRecruiter. When you're looking for a laser tag teammate across the country, or looking to join a team when you're on vacation or work travel, ZapRecruiter is for you. Already, nearly tens of people have used ZapRecruiter to find a laser tag team for them in a foreign city. Nice. <laughs> I think it's important to point out in our podcast here that we start drinking beer just before we start recording, and then we continue to drink beer as we go through the recording. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over time and, and the quality of, of our insights. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Election Circus 2020. So uh, 
in or this is our first podcast, so we want to start off with giving a baseline of here's all the candidates, and there are plenty of them. I got 15 as of this moment, unless somebody else announced today. Uh, and I will note that Joe Biden is not on here in spite of him accidentally saying he was running for office because it's still unofficial. Yeah, Uncle Joe has not fired up his campaign Camaro yet, but we expect him to. Yep. Maybe he's still painting the, the big screaming chicken yes. on the hood. And EJ, full disclosure, is a Camaro driver, so I am. he would know. And being from Detroit, screaming chicken is a thing I know. First candidate, uh, and we're just kind of going, uh, I found an article that just ran off a huge list of these, so no particular order. We'll start with Beto O'Rourke, especially since he was the prominent one in the news lately. And, uh, you know, obviously him jumping in, there's been a lot of talk about what does he actually represent? Is he more conservative than people tended to think of him as he was running for a Senate in Texas? Uh, one thing I was personally concerned about was... Uh, possibly not gaining a Senate seat in Texas uh, because Beto was running for president instead. And apparently uh, Joaquin Castro uh, has decided to run for Senate. So that's a possible good choice yeah. there that, you know, filling in for what Beto might have done. So, And so, you know, Beto's got these credentials, you know, six years, I think, six years in, in Congress and then the, the failed Senate bid, but really overperformed. And he's used that overperformance to sort of springboard himself into the national spotlight. And I will say this about him. He does a good job of controlling the message. And I think when people, especially strategists, look back at 2016, they'll say, what did we get wrong about the valuation of candidates on the Republican side? And I think many of them would say it's that they undervalued the ability to control the message. And so how many people, what percentage of the media covered Beto's Instagram post versus showed up for Amy Klobuchar's standing in the snow speech announcing right, their presidency. Right. And you look at that difference and almost qualifications aside, what does that say about where we are and maybe even who's ahead there? Absolutely. And he raised, what did he raise in the first day. $6.1 million, which you have to say with pinky at the corner of your mouth. Absolutely. It after was you talk about your sharks with lasers. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, he, he pulled in quite a haul. And, you know, obviously he had his mailing list from back when he ran. And there was the talk that some of Obama's backers were a big fan of his. So he may have gotten some support from them as well. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, then we got uh, next up John Hickenlooper. Uh, who's uh, currently the governor of Colorado and is, uh, I, I believe he's term limited, if I'm yes, not mistaken. So he he's moving on. You're from Colorado. Well, Shouldn't I haven't you know been this? there in a while. So I, so for context, I grew up there, uh, went to college here in Illinois. So uh, I've been a little out of touch with Colorado politics for a while. Uh, but I do know that he uh, likes fracking and marijuana. So, you know. But his history was he uh, started up a, a brewery there when that was a very new thing to do in Colorado. Uh, so he got in early on that. Uh, overall, though, it seems like he's a fairly conservative, relatively speaking, Democrat. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But certainly in that I can win in a purple state-ish kind of vein, right? Yeah, I, I, I think Colorado at this point is blue enough that it's probably not 
a Not question. Not even in that but, purple. But we, we shall see. Jay Inslee, who's solely running to talk about climate change. Which is actually really... Like, I don't know how much I'm into Jay Inslee's campaign, but I'm. Ref it's refreshing to see somebody taking that seriously, you yeah. know, given... I mean, I was seeing something the other day about, you know, where we had talked about two to four degrees centigrade increases. We're now talking 10 to 12 because of how clouds work. So somebody needs to be focusing on that, at least to bring it into the conversation. And hopefully that will, mm -hmm. even if he doesn't win, will help drive others to sort of take positions on it and do something more prominent about it. You're right, right, for sure. And I mean, I think we see that a lot of candidates at every level. Can you change the conversation because you're taking positions to the left or to the right Absolutely. of others? Yep. Bernie. Bernie. Bernie Sanders. Uh, I don't think we have to talk much about him because you all know him from, uh, from 2016. I, I have to say I was hoping he would not run just because I feel like it brings a lot of the 2016 karma into the race, but... You know, he back to our money conversation, he raised $3 million on the first day. So clearly he's got, you know, still connections to his good grassroots uh, fundraising efforts. So what are you going to do? Uh, I will say one thing that's really great, though, is he's got a unionized campaign staff, which is uh, unheard of. So, you know, yeah, that's a that big is change. that is really cool. And it may be more of a symbol than anything else, but it's the right symbol. For sure. I think. Yeah. And what is really interesting and maybe two things. One is that when he raised all that money in the first 24 hours of his campaign in this cycle, people were blown away because that was way more than anybody else had raised. And then Beto came in and raised almost double. Yep. I mean, that is that is crazy. Um, yeah, and it'll be interesting to see like how how that translates into support. Like we know that Beto had, and is it Beto or Beto? I think it's actually Beto, but. Um, but I think it'll be interesting to see how that translates into support down the line. Does that represent, you know, larger dollar donors versus smaller dollar donors? And we'll yeah. kind of see how that plays and, out. And let's be perfectly clear about this. It's Robert Francis O'Rourke. It's Robert Francis. Right, right. <laughs> I'm not saying that he's pandering by Does using he, a Now, that's interesting. Does he have to run on the presidential ballot as... Robert Francis O'Rourke. I, I will tell you this, that at least in the city of Chicago, you can choose the name that you put on there. Okay. So in the aldermanic elections, uh, we had people using their, you know, sort of diminutive names. So maybe a Kathleen or Catherine runs as a Katie. We also had uh, my favorite candidate here in Chicago, Mike Limo-Z. I don't even remember what his last name was, but Limo-Z... <laughs> Uh, Limo right. Mike Z maybe there on the on the ballot itself. So I think I think it'll be close enough. Beto Beto. Well, and, and in Chicago, O'Rourke, the good Irish name, he'd have no problem here. So <laughs> absolutely, kind of hits both sides. But the other thing about Bernie, and I, I I think that this is important, is that in 2016 he was kind of the phenom, right? He was the person nobody gave much chance to. And he ran a great campaign, very grassroots. Um, if people have been in politics, especially on the progressive side since then, you'll see thousands of articles about how that campaign was run, uh, sort of decentralized and very democratic, small d. And now he can't be that 
person. Yeah. And so it'll be interesting to me to see how that works. Well, and, and I think that there were clear problems with doing it that way. I mean, there was all the reports of, of sexual harassment that wasn't properly addressed and things like that. And it sounds like they've made efforts to create some structure to help prevent that going forward. And we'll have to see kind of how that plays out. And speaking of uh, organizational culture <laughs> and staff culture, Amy Klobuchar. Yes. So I have to say, well, I mean, as far as her staff issues are concerned, you know, I've seen various people try to talk about how because she's a woman, she's not given as much leeway to be tough on staffers. I've also seen people who have, you know, at least second degree knowledge of the information who are really have a very strong opinion against her because of it. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, you know, as somebody who doesn't have close up knowledge of that, uh, I don't feel I can speak intelligently about whether or not right. the accusations come, that have come out are, are true. My knowledge of similar kinds of organizations tells me that they probably have some degree of truth and maybe we need to be thinking about, and this is something that's sort of near and dear to my heart, the culture that we espouse in campaigns and in political offices and maybe it's a culture that is sort of derived partially from the level of pressure and what people see on tv as being the reality of working in politics where everything is a last second decision and that's going to be very important and going to make or break a campaign or a Absolutely. bill or yep. something like that yeah and, and as far as it goes though like I don't see her sticking around for very long, not because of any of that, but she's very actively saying, I'm a moderate, vote for me because I'm a moderate. And I feel like there's not, there's not, it's not something that's going to energize people. Like there's lots of different issues you could focus on or, and you could try to take on the progressive label or, you know, or something like that. But I'm a moderate, I'm going to be reasonable, and I'm going to work with Republicans. That's like, that. no. Like yeah. we, we've tr we tried that for eight years with Obama, for most of those eight years. Didn't really work out. So I don't see that getting very far. Yeah, I don't think it has a lot of legs. And I, when I look at her candidacy, I wonder if she would have run, even if our current president were our current president, he who shall not be named, uh, if Hillary Clinton had won Minnesota, would Amy Klobuchar run now? Mm -hmm. I think the answer is no. Yeah. Because I do believe there is a certain amount of cash cachet that says, I can run because I can win one of these states, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin. And I would say, thankfully, again, personal opinion, thankfully, uh, the good senator from Ohio has decided not to run for president. Agreed. I mean, I, I do like, I think he would have, had he gotten the, and we're talking about Sherrod Brown, um, had he gotten the nomination, you know, he would have been an inside track to win in Ohio, which would have been great. But, you know, we need that Senate seat. And I think we, you know, with all these candidates running, like if we don't get the Senate in today's climate, the chances of them being able to appoint literally anybody is at risk. So yeah. I think it's something we have to be very concerned about and focus on. Yeah. Um, 
So to go from there, we get to my my personal favorite, and I, I will, in full disclosure, say I'm wearing an Elizabeth Warren T-shirt while we're recording this. Uh, but yes, Elizabeth Warren, uh, the senator from Massachusetts. I've seen her speak uh, several times at Netroots Nation, and I've I've long been a fan of hers. She's definitely good on progressive policy. She's very she's very wonky, I guess would be the best way to put it. But like you know, she's really made a big strong point of going after banks, and she has a really good grasp of the financial issues that are affecting this country. So that's why she's my favorite. Yeah. Um, Having said that, I have concerns about how things were handled with, you know, the DNA test and her Native American heritage and how all of that played out. Um, and, and I don't really know how, how we address that. I'm hoping that as we go forward and get into the debates and, and we get to see that evolve, we'll, we'll see that that's, you know, something positive come from all of that. But, you know, she's my current favorite is in, in the whole list of candidates. So we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, and I, I really like her. Actually, first of all, let me say I really like your T-shirt. Thank you. She persisted. Yes, the nevertheless she persisted T-shirt. And I, I like where she's come from and the work she's done, uh, the work she she did uh, with Obama in terms of the consumer protection. Her work as a senator has been consistent. All of that. I, I wonder about lanes here and how she and Bernie Sanders overlap, especially. Um, you know, I think one of them should definitely carry on. I don't know the right answer there. They're both senators. And as you said, Stephen, I think this is very important when we think about it strategically. Losing Senate seats is well troublesome. It, a Senate seat in Massachusetts or Vermont, I'm not too worried about. But you know, who knows? Strange things. I mean, I mean, she won that from a Republican. So, you know, stranger things have happened. And it wasn't too long ago that Massachusetts had a Republican governor. It is weird, isn't it? <laughs> Mitt Romney used to be governor of Massachusetts. <laughs> and passed Obamacare. And passed Obamacare. Okay. Uh, Everybody take a drink of their beer. Right. Yes. Yeah. Cheers to that. I mean, moving on from there, we've got Cory Booker. Uh, I've I've seen him speak, and he does an amazing speech. I mean, very good at hitting the right emotional notes and all of that. I don't really trust him because I feel like he's been somebody who's very happy to align himself with big financial interests. I know that on the uh, they, there was a bill that was being passed to do uh, bring in uh, re drug reimportation from Canada, and he voted against it, saying it was a safety issue, which is completely absurd. Uh, so I I don't know what to make of him. I think it's good that he's in the in the in the contest, and we'll see how it plays out. I don't know what are your thoughts. You know, I'm kind of a, the same about Corey. I, I haven't seen him speak. Uh, I've you know watched some things, which isn't the same as sort of being in the room with him. He certainly has some votes that you question, although I tend to be a pretty big pragmatist on things. And so I know that sometimes you have to make the wrong decision to to be able to make the right one later on down the road. I, I'm i not particularly inspired by him, however. Yeah. Um, I think that 
in the end, he would settle out to be a pretty moderate president. Yeah, I mean, I could see him being inspiring, but in such a large field, it's going to be very hard for him to cut out any space for himself. Yeah. You know, I mean, he'll obviously be have the debates, but it's, it doesn't really lend itself to the kind of, like, the public speaking kind of things that I think he would really latch on to and be really good at. But we'll see how it plays out. Okay, so uh, I would say second in the all-name team for the Democratic field, Peter Buttigieg, behind Hickenlooper. Is that how it's pronounced? I can't. <laughs> I'm always I'm like a Pete Pete Bud- actually I think just Mayor Pete yeah, I think is really the best Mayor way Pete. to go on this cuz and and part of me doesn't want him to do well because I get tired of trying to figure out how to type his name out <laughs> but in the grand scheme it's interesting to see how his launch has been so well covered yeah for being somebody nobody's ever heard of like he had a CNN town hall I saw people sharing clips of that all over Facebook it seems anything he does, I see somebody posting about it. So right. he's got smart people working for him. I just don't know kind of how, how that's going to work in the long run. Yeah, and I, I'll, I'll say a couple things. One is that I know people from the Chicago municipal elections who are trying to latch on to his campaign. They are seeing what he's done, and they're inspired by it, and they want to be part of it. And he's also from a Midwestern town. And uh, during uh, Ahmed Pouar's campaign for governor, driving around Illinois. And when I went to school, I went to school in the middle of Michigan. You know, these are towns that they have a voice. And they are, I think, for many people, the voice that was forgotten by the Democratic Party. And so, you know, him being the mayor of a smallish Midwestern town, albeit a college town where Notre Dame is, South Bend, Indiana, uh, is... And again, full disclosure, I'm from Indiana originally, uh, you know, is appealing to people. And driving through South Bend, and I've been there in the last week, it is what I think about in terms of a smallish Midwestern town. You've got the university. You have lots of things that echo a time of more prosperity for towns of that size. And so I think that there is something appealing about that. Now, I think in the long term, people are going to look at South Bend, you know, as a whole and ask themselves, where is it actually at? And does that translate to being... Does does that translate into having the ability to run a whole country right. as opposed to running a city? Right. And I don't know what the city council looks like in right. South Bend, Indiana. I suspect it's three Jesuits and some other folks. If they have like 50 mini mayors or however yeah, that I, works. I, <laughs> I doubt that. I will tell you that uh, on my way from uh, the place that I was at to the freeway, I passed three vape shops and a Chick-fil-A, which is a good cross-section of where we're at now. So I, I what he says makes sense. I think he is, he's got a good message. He's a millennial. He's younger. I think there is a space in the Democratic Party for a younger, fresh candidate. Yeah, and I feel like he's hitting a lot of that same sweet spot that that Beto had when he ran in Texas. So it'll be interesting to see how their support plays out over the long run. I mean, obviously, Beto's got that that leftover, uh, you know, stuff from his Senate and his ability to raise money. 
uh, Mayor Pete is building that up from scratch. So we'll see how that that plans out. Uh, Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris. Um, I have to say, I I love the thought of a progressive woman of color who's a former prosecutor running against Donald Trump. Like, you know, I mean, I I, I want to get more into like what her positions are on different issues. I I gather she's mostly supportive of Medicare for all with some hesitation, things like that. But that would be such an amazing campaign to watch that unfold. I, I agree uh, wholeheartedly. And one of the things that I loved about her kickoff, first of all, I know people who were in Oakland downtown for that kickoff, and they said that the energy was amazing. Yeah. They said they hadn't heard or felt anything like that outside of, the NBA, right? They've had some, they've had some parades of some sort down there, but they said that the energy was great. They loved being down there, and I think that there's something to be said for that. And then, of course, he who shall not be named complimented her on the size of her kickoff rally, right? Yeah, on Twitter, I don't think he has a nickname for her yet. No, that maybe that's the thing, which is maybe interesting. The, the single. The single deciding factor we should have as Democrats should be the quality of their Trump nicknames. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, this, you know, 2020 is going to be run in media. Yeah. One we thing I did hear about her when she first started running, I was interacting with somebody on Facebook and you would think that wouldn't go well. But in this case, they were talking about how they're a big supporter of her because of how she was as a as a prosecutor. And I I had heard a lot of negative things about her because of that. And so I asked why. And they said, a, 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 I don't remember if it was a relative of theirs or a close friend of theirs, uh, didn't go to prison because uh, she didn't prosecute them under a, th- a three-strike law. Like, because it was like the three-strikes yeah, law. Right. Like, they would have gone to prison for, for life, I guess, is the way it works. And so that didn't happen because of her discretion as a prosecutor. So... You know, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out with her because she has a fairly deep record there yeah. where she doesn't have as deep of a record as a senator. So. Right, right. And, you know, I think The Atlantic just did an article. I think it was The Atlantic about prosecutors running as progressives, which is both relevant for us nationally right. and locally Lori in Lightfoot. Chicago. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so Kristen Gillibrand. I have nothing to say about her. Not even the people in New York think she's going to win. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, she gets a lot of grief for uh, her position on Al Franken, which I actually completely agree with her on. Uh, I think that it, it, the, the pattern of behavior from Al Franken was pretty clear, and I think that it made sense for him to be pushed out of, of the Senate, even though he was nominally a good senator uh, up until that point. So I think that's fine. We'll kind of see how that plays out. And I know that she's very much trying to establish herself as a very, like, feminist pro-women kind of candidate and so we'll see you know in this in our current climate if that works for her or you know she gets drowned out by by other candidates yeah i just don't know how you get it's not a differentiating enough factor agree right agree with with the number of people who are supporting those kind of around her and in different you know in the same lanes and you know i think this concept of lanes plays out very starkly when you start to look at the Democratic Yeah, there's just so many people running. You have yeah. to have some way to distinguish yourself. And there, there's still only three lanes. Yeah. There are four lanes. You can't, 
you're not going to be able to create five or six more. This isn't the Bay Bridge where you can start stacking them on top of one there, another. There was a really interesting article on 538 where they kind of broke down the different candidates and their position in the Democratic Party across a couple different spectrums. It basically broke it down to like six groups. So there was like an African-American section. There was the, the left section. There was the establishment section and like how they all aligned across those different groupings. And so it's interesting, and maybe we can do this on another podcast, like go through and talking about how these people play into those lanes yeah. and see what makes sense. Um, well, and the cross-section about how people actually vote as well. So oh, absolutely. I, I don't know that there is a single person in the list that is in a lane by themselves. There, so. Yeah, there is definitely not. Um, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, nobody cares about. Julian Castro. I like Julian Castro. He worked for Obama. That's good. I like people who work for Obama, yeah. other than Rahm Emanuel. Um, he looks too much like Joaquin Castro. I have to say, though, Tulsi Gabbard, I feel like she's going to stick around the campaign just long enough to not make the Democratic debates and then raise a giant stink about it. That's, it's like, for the people who thought, I like Bernie Sanders, but I want somebody actually more extreme and... and, and <laughs> I, I don't. I actually don't know what lane she's running. I, yeah, I, it's. I I want to know who her ideal voter is because you know when you're running, you always say like, "This is my base. This is the person I need to get out and I need to energize them." Yeah. I would love to see how they. I don't want to meet that person. <laughs> I, I agree. I don't want. I don't. I don't see where they fit. Uh, um, so then to round out the list, we have Marianne Williamson, Andrew Yang, and John Delaney. I know very little about any of them, and they will probably drop out before long. Although Andrew Yang did raise money from 65,000 individual donors. So one okay. of the things that in the DNC, it says if you raise uh, money from 65,000 individual donors, that sort of gets you a seat at the table as you move forward. Okay. So it's a very important number in that p presidential. Uh, again, I've looked at some of his policies. He doesn't stand out anywhere. His... The biggest thing where he stands out is that nobody knows about him. Right. So so he can kind of, if he's smart about it, he can kind of form whatever image he wants and yeah. maybe has some success. And parlay so. that into something else. For but sure. Probably not viable in, in the long term. So, you know, looking at that list, we've got 15, 15 names here. And, and Biden again, isn't on it yet. Exactly. <laughs> Crazy Uncle Joe, not on there yet. And his Camaro. He's... He's working on it. It's uh, dual carbs. He's he's tuning it up, waiting to get uh, waiting to get on the street. I, you know, I look at this list and I think I had hoped it to be. I had hoped it to have more diversity in the viable candidates. Mm, agreed. To be perfectly honest, and you know, I think. Who's viable here? Beto. Well, yeah, Beto. Be, be, yeah, yeah, yeah. Be, Beto, Beto. Beto. I'm sure there's a whole Mr. podcast Mr. on pronouncing, uh, you know, Bartholomew O'Rourke's uh, nickname. Bernie Sanders, viable. Cory Booker, viable. Kamala Harris, viable. Um, I Warren would be viable, but I feel like Bernie Sanders is just going to trample her message so yeah i don't know i don't know how she gets out of the the shadow of so you've got east coasters 
and progressives. Yeah. I don't know how she gets out of the shadow of that. Something else. Something else I want to call out here is I'm. I'm. So far, Stacey Abrams has not gotten into the race, and she was suggested as somebody who might. And I'm. I'm. It seems like her intention is to focus on building up Georgia, and addressing some of the problems that made it hard for her to run for office in Georgia and potentially run for, for Senate there. And so I want to give her a lot of credit for focusing on the things that aren't as exotic and exciting as being a president, but really like getting important things done at that level. Yeah, I think that is a really, that's a really good point. And, you know, people have called on her to be, <laughs> of course you agree. Just, I'm helping you out. So. Right. So people have pointed out, like, well, she could run for president or she would be a great running mate. Like, I think her as a running mate would be a huge waste. A huge Vice waste. president doesn't do anything. No. I mean, they can, but it's always at the whims of the president. Right. And it's unless you're George W. Bush and getting snowed by Dick Cheney, like, eh, no. No. And I want not people who really are in office stone. making good votes putting policy in place, yeah. making real change, and not just writing somebody else's election. Yeah. I, I mean, they always talk about it, but it's really just to win a state. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think about the vice presidents recently that have gone on to do great things, like Dan Quayle. <laughs> I mean, I, I, Dick Al Cheney Gore. did have a very good movie, I will say. So, you know, give I him mean, some credit. But it's just, I think that there's a bit of a fallacy that that's a, a step up for somebody. Yeah. You know, I think that there's a much better case that she is going to be working with somebody like an Eric Holder on, on voting rights. She's going to be holding that sort of rhetorical line. She's going to be working hard in Georgia. She's going to be supporting other candidates who are aligned with that view. I think those are, that's much more viable. And, and frankly, and again, personally, I think that that's a great spot for her to be in. I, I really look forward to seeing her doing other great things, you know, at the state level and absolutely and influencing at the national level. Yep. Um, and not that she couldn't run for president. I just think that in this sort of Cheeto-eating feeding frenzy that we have right now leading up to 2020, I, there's no breathing space. Yeah. And that's, Yeah. I think that's do, probably going to mean that we lose a good candidate or two. Right. Yeah, and don't misread that I'm saying, oh, she shouldn't run for president, she couldn't do it, da-da-da. No, what I'm saying is... I feel like she sees the value that of of those state races, Senate races that that I think we often overlook. And I think that's a real credit to her. Well, I got to tell you, that is a lot. Episode one, I think, is just about done. We've talked about all 15 for now candidates in full disclosure two or three people might have announced in the interim. Yes. Um, and there are plenty of things that are still going on at the national level. We haven't even talked about uh, Mueller Watch. Mueller Watch. Mueller. Mueller. Mueller, Mueller Watch. Mueller Watch. <laughs> Some of the other very topical things that are going on right now. Uh, various and sundry people being indicted. 
in uh, various and sundry witch hunts. Yeah, one thing I found today uh, was kind of interesting was USA Today had this god-awful headline saying that more than half of Americans don't trust the Mueller probe and say it's a witch hunt. Well, when you go and look at their, their wonderful little survey, you find out that, let's see, how many was it? It was 35% uh, of the poll was self-identifying conservatives. 23% were self-identifying liberals. So they had this poll. They got those numbers like, oh, wow, it's this big conclusion. Nobody expected, except that you have bad data. I think, like, this is something, given that your background and my background, like, we will come back to regularly is surveys are done in terrible ways, and we should call that out. Yeah. Even I, though there's like a 538 something or other that's probably covering it better. but <laughs> I, I know that those guys spend a lot of time on it, but it is true that uh, both of us have a background in technology, uh, in some political science and sociology, and I always want to get into those, the details of the polls, yep. not to discredit them as much to decide how much eye roll I should absolutely throw absolutely. in their direction. Yeah. And you know, going from that, talking about the Mueller probe, uh, we did have fairly big news in that Republicans seem to finally be standing up to Trump in a, a little bit. Uh, we had 420 votes in the House to release the Mueller report and zero votes against it. Right. And those were voice votes, votes right? So the, that was not a call for consent. Those were actual votes. There were some people who abstained. Right. But it wasn't a... You know, people had to affirmatively vote. So it's, it's, I believe, probably the first vote in Trump's term that has gone against him in the House, other than he actually lost a vote in the Senate to shut down his emergency funding of the wall this, and leading to his first veto of the session. So that's kind that of is something. So, yeah, 59, 59 people, senators, voted against the emergency declaration. Now, that's notable in that 12 Republican senators sort of broke, and they justified that saying that it was about adherence to the Constitution and saying that really the Congress should have power of the purse, not the president. So they're trying to defend that. And the other part of that is that you'd need 67 senators to override the veto. Maybe it's a bit of a hollow gesture uh, still, it is notable, and that goes along with the two other interesting votes this week in the legislature. One uh, against uh, support for the war in Yemen. So the president is very much in support of giving money to the Saudis so that they can fight a proxy war in Yemen. Uh, and then the third thing being the unanimous vote to release the Mueller probe by the House of Representatives, which, of course, uh, the Cheeto had said he told them to go along with, and that's why it happened. <laughs> sure, sure, sure it did, Donnie. Another thing that we saw this week uh, was the 737 MAX uh, getting grounded. And the more that we hear about this, the more that, uh, the more interesting the story becomes. So if you aren't familiar with it, what happened is the 737 that they built is a little prone to stalling under certain conditions, which means that, you know, if the plane is climbing, it might lose airspeed and then kind of nosedive and potentially crash on the ground. And so they built this system to help it correct for that automatically to make it easier for the pilots. 
Well, turns out it makes it easier for the pilots to run to the ground uh, if not not set up correctly. And a few things have come out about this. First of all, the FAA was told about this software problem four days before the second crash of one of these planes. So they didn't do anything with it. They didn't put it out into the world and let you know Ethiopian Airlines know that this might be a problem. The second thing is this system that they had in these planes, the MCAS system, uh, had a way to warn pilots that it was active, but it was only available on an upgraded package of the plane with additional like readouts. So if you didn't pay money extra to the plane, uh, to pay money, pay more for the plane. <laughs> Speaking of lawn darts, yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> picturing a pilot feeding one dollar bills into the plane's yes. instrument <laughs> panel, like. Like I'm at Chuck E. Cheese. Right, right. Uh, so, yeah, so if you didn't pay for those upgrades, you didn't know that there was a problem and thus potentially right. crash the plane, as we saw in two cases. Yeah, and, and I think the other interesting part about that is that here you have a plane. Now, typically, when a new model of a plane, even a new version, right? So the 737 has been around for a long time. I believe it is the most produced commercial airliner in history. And as somebody who travels frequently for work, I've been on all manner of 737s for the last And my father years. used to fly them. So. so typically when they come out, there is a training regime that goes with them. There is a recommendation about whether or not to change your training simulators for the different airlines. That did not happen with those. And there is a lot of question right now about whether or not the documentation, the pilot instructions that came with this was adequate, uh, even to the point where you know some pilots anonymously said that it was sort of criminally inadequate. And you know, as you leave sort of the nexus of that information, so information flows out of Seattle, out to the rest of the world, how many people are learning about this? And, you know, I've read in the last couple of days that pilots in the U.S. were turning off the autopilot on takeoff when flying the 737 MAX 8 and MAX 9 to avoid this problem. Because, again, the autopilot was overcorrecting for a perceived stall and changing the elevator. So if you think about the tail fin on a plane, you've got flaps on the back there that control the pitch up and down. Fla flaps are on the wings, sir. <laughs> elevators on the tail. Did I mention my dad's a pilot? <laughs> he did, but I said elevators. So the elevators are able to move in greater increments than autopilots typically are yes. with these. And so 2.5 degrees is pretty big. We're getting into some details now that nobody cares about. But it was a shock to pilots. Yeah. And you know, and I a little more context is my, my dad actually was a trainer he would train pilots in simulators so he would throw all these different circumstances at them uh you know a broken landing gear a, a engine failure and so they will train for all these different scenarios that might come up so that they don't have to think about it when it's happening they can react and you know we saw the you know the several years ago when they had the the bird strike in a plane and the guy landed on a river that's all about training and Sully. knowing what to do and if there's a system that's doing things that the pilot has no way to be aware of it, let alone be trained on how to address it, 
that's a recipe for disaster, as we've seen in yeah. two cases. Yeah, and I think we also saw this in an Airbus uh, plane, I don't know, 15 years ago at the Paris Air Show, where there was a situation where the pilot wanted to take off, the plane wanted to land, and they fought between them, and they ended up crashing. So we'll see how that comes out, especially given that there was a large push from the CEO of Boeing to get the plane certified and then keep the plane in the air. Yeah, and, and within the day that they decided to finally ground them, Trump was out there saying, oh no, they're fine, everything's fine. Right, and then I don't trust Einstein piloting my plane. <laughs> so I, I don't know, I think Einstein would be an excellent pilot, he's got a good attention to detail, plus his understanding of relativity, he can give you a better sense of what time you're actually gonna land at the next airport, so. Hard but he won't be able to tell you how old you'll be. Right, right. So another really interesting thing now, we've talked about local politics, hyper-local with the aldermanic races here in Chicago. We've talked about mayoral races in Chicago, Circus 2020 with our Democratic candidates and what's happening with our current president around the world. But let's talk about Brexit for just a second. It's hard to be thinking about politics without acknowledging what's happening in the United Kingdom and the European Union and the general craziness that's going on there. So, you know, a number of years ago there was a referendum and, you know, 50.4% of the British populace voted to leave Europe. And since then, Theresa May has been trying to find a deal to leave Europe in a clean way. And it's been very complicated for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that Northern Ireland is technically part of the United Kingdom, uh, but has a border with Ireland, which is part of the European Union. So what do you do with that situation? Um, and there have been a number of interesting votes on the UK side in the parliament, both votes of confidence to keep Theresa May in power, but also sort of stunning rebukes, as they would call it on BBC, of her proposals for how to move on for that. So we're a number of days depending on when you're listening to this, 10 to 12 days from the hard right. Brexit Right, I think date. today we're at 11 days out from it. And it's, it's interesting to see how like, the layers of local British politics play into this and how you've got the conservatives who don't want to piss off their base by turning against Brexit, even though that might be the most intelligent thing to do at this point. And so right now, you know, they're hurtling towards a hard Brexit, and in order to even stave that off at this point, they would need literally everybody else in the EU, every single country would have to say, yes, we're willing to extend it. And if they don't vote to extend it, then we hit Brexit and nobody really knows right. what happens at that point. You've got rules that are different for the UK because they're part of the EU right now versus everywhere else in the world in terms of how shipping works, how payments work, et cetera. So, there's layers and layers to that that are all going to be a complete mess and it will affect the global economy and we don't know we know it will affect it we just don't know how right. yet and right. so it's getting awfully close and i think everybody has this assumption that things are going to work out okay because it makes more sense that it does but that same comfort might be what ends up sabotaging this in the end yeah nobody knows how it's going to work yeah. out and and what you said is really important in that even if there's a vote on Tuesday of this week and the British Parliament somehow passes the agreement that Theresa May has put forward, 
that's a framework agreement. And so all of the details would still need to be worked out. So even in that scenario, the European Parliament would have to agree to extend it for the number of months necessary to pass all those details. And if they don't pass this thing right away, there's a situation where there's an indeterminate amount of time that crosses over the next European parliamentary elections, which adds a whole nother level of complexity. Absolutely. Because nobody, not the British, nor anybody else, was expecting there to be the British in the next parliament. For sure. And, you know, the, the self-interest of different European nations are all going to start playing into this because certain companies have said, well, if the UK isn't in the EU... It doesn't make sense for us to have our operations there. Right. And so, for example, the Netherlands has made a big play to have those companies move to the Netherlands to do their business. So when it comes up for a vote to extend things and try to help the U.K. get through this, does the Netherlands really have an interest in helping them? You know, there's obviously some benefit to having stability and predictable behaviors, but... You know, if you get enough upside from a few extra companies moving to your country, do you really care? Yeah, agreed. And and maybe even countries like Italy, whose government has sort of got an anti-European sentiment anyway. You know, like, why would they want to promote or continue that that structure? It's going to be really interesting. And I, you know, I lived in in London for a couple of years and, you know, I have a lot of friends and contacts there and. You know, you can see similar kinds of divides in English politics to ones we have here. Absolutely. Urban versus rural, education, wealth, class, those kinds of things. Sort of people They're using just universal those. human yeah. ways that we fight with each other. So I think then we'll just wrap on a, on a lighter note uh, and talk about 63 Red Safe. My new favorite app. Right. So 63 Red Safe is the the idea of this was somebody wanting for people who were supporters of Donald Trump and who wanted to be able to wear their mega, hi, mega hats with pride, being able to identify restaurants and bars where they would feel safe to go. And I'm sure those places exist. But I don't think they really needed an app for it. And, and I gather there was like that's been shut down since this all came out. But where did the 63 come from? The guy who created it said he didn't really have, he just kind of came up with it. Like it wasn't anything in particular, it didn't have any meaning. That's very on brand. Right. <laughs> that is very on brand. So, I, uh, I, I appreciate uh, I appreciate it's a place for people who are very sensitive to their needs to get away from snowflakes. That's very sure. important. You know, it's and it's funny though, like I think about it and I as I walk down the road in Chicago or anywhere else and I see a red hat at a distance, I always have this like cringing, like, please don't be a MAGA hat. And and 99% of the time it is not a MAGA hat, but I'm always like looking for it. And it's not like I would harass the person, but I definitely judge them very harshly. I mean, it's it's right. Well, they also could be a Cardinals fan. So. They could be, yes. Well, right. And so there would be other reasons to judge them harshly. Right. But. And I'll tell you, growing up uh, in Detroit, the, uh, the cardinal of our archdiocese in Detroit would often be seen golfing with a red hat on, too. So okay. one way or another. Fair enough. 
Well, I think that's going to wrap it up. Yes, I think Episode we're good. Uh, we've got we're both about two beers into this whole operation, Absolutely. maybe a little more than that. And, two uh, beers and a pretzel and a half, and a pretzel and some cheese. So, uh, special thanks to Twisted Hippo for hosting us. Though yeah. I don't think we gave them a choice, but no, we did not. But we, did uh, not. The, we, we talked. Was it the owner you were talking with? We were. Yeah, uh, he seems like a pretty cool guy, and so really enjoy the beers here. So yeah, come on up. Uh, take Brown Line to Rockwell. Walk uh, south to Montrose. You'll see it right there. Yeah. Albany Park, man. Yeah. Living in the Albany Park. So, yeah, not sure where we're going to go to next week, but we'll uh, find out when we get there. So we'll talk to you then.